Chariot Developer News, Episode 75, Dude. <laughs> we'll strike that for the record. All right, so I think we have our list. Uh, Cherry Developer News, episode number 75 for Monday, January 13th, 2014. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. I'm Eric Snyder. If anyone was listening to the dev news in the 30s, 20s, and teens, I think, that was your range? I was thinking Probably. late 80s, but I get it. The late 80s, yeah, he has a mullet. He used to have a mullet. It's all gone now. Right. And unlike us, he does not have the facial hair we're working towards. There's something weird going on, like in the uh, San Francisco Giants going on a chariot. Um, so we're here to talk about all the dev news we can come up with and fit to print. Uh, and uh, we are sponsored today by Chariot Solutions Training Services. We are now running two courses uh, in the near future. Um, if you take a look at uh, chariotsolutions.com slash training, you'll see uh, an AngularJS two-day course coming up in a couple of weeks um, towards the late February time frame, I believe. And we also have a uh, core spring course in the same rough time frame as well. So if you were looking to take uh, spring training, uh, that's coming up as well. So again, that's at chariotsolutions.com slash training. Uh, and we're also sponsored by Hadle. Make your team more productive by capturing information that's normally stuck in email and people's heads. Check out our three-minute explainer video at hadle.com. So let's start out with uh, some news here. I'm actually going to jump a little further down in the list. Um, let's talk first about uh, Infinite Scroll. I'm going to grab that first. So I know that's the new fad in uh, website design is, you know, kind of from Twitter and Facebook, this infinite scrolling uh, move. And it looks like a lot of companies have gone crazy with infinite scroll, where they really don't seem to want to have more than one HTML page. <laughs> Has anyone noticed that? <laughs> so you, you take, you know, and, and I'm just going to just grab one at random um, here. If you take, for example, look at uh, uh, Scala, uh, TypeSafe's uh, blog. It'll be fun with that one because they were one of the first companies that I saw that really started doing this, they do really interesting tricks. Like, for example, I grab the typesafe.com site, and I drag downward with my, well, upward because I'm a Mac, but uh, I'm dragging the page downward, and as I'm dragging the page downward, this little phone drags up, and it says Mobile National 5, interactivity is everywhere. And then there's like a monitor down below, and the cloud comes through the monitor, data and compute clouds, and I keep going, and I got lots of circles, and it's event-driven systems, and eventually I get to the content of the page. And I keep on scrolling and keep on scrolling. Um, do you think this is a fad, or do you think this is something that's going to stick around? Uh, I I don't know if it'll stick around, but uh, so there's a lot of sort of hate on, on this paradigm yeah. right now, which I, I think it makes sense when you have um, things that are a series of posts or articles or links. You know what I mean? Especially when they're time sensitive. Right. Like for example, you know your mobile Facebook app, right? It's infinite scroll, or Vine or something like that. I can't imagine it. Uh, you know, in a paginated fashion or anything like that. So I don't understand. I don't get the hate myself. Mm. I mean, I, I guess there's no sense of completion is is what a lot of people are saying. That's what the article I'm linking to actually says. It's it's kind of a rant um, by someone, I guess, a developer or a designer that says that exact thing. I like it. I don't know. In, in, yeah, I like it. Too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have kids today. <laughs> well, because like. Um, so some of the news sites started putting that in there. And so st rather than going like article through article, when you're done one article, it just takes the next one in the section. Right. It just keeps going. It yeah. makes a lot of sense. It's, it's USA Today instead of a grown-up newspaper. Yeah. Ooh. And, and then you're like, um, you know, basically 
the one thing I don't like about it though is pagination, even though it's, I don't like pagination, but it gives you a sense of how big something is, except for like Google, mm. it doesn't really matter. And you can jump to the middle a lot easier. That's the one thing that I haven't figured out how to make a nice UI that is infinite scroll, but you could kind of, what if I know that, I just kind of know that the thing I'm looking for isn't in the top 10? Well, how about, how about the paradigm uh, like, um, like, like our WordPress blogs, for example, right? right? So you see excerpts and you could jump to the original article where you have a beginning and an end. You know, with anchor tags and things like that. Yeah, maybe that's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and and we're not using infinite scroll obviously in that new site, but um, you know, it was something we discussed early on, and because it was kind of new for us at least visually at the time, it was right around the summer, and that was when it was really starting to me to catch on. People were really starting to move towards it, maybe a little earlier than that, but uh, we decided not to. You know, mostly for the fact that we can, people are generally searching for a particular type of content, jumping into that blog entry, viewing it moving on to something else, but it could make sense to digest it that way. You just kind of, you know, grab a never-ending scroll of the actual content, so. I'm just amazed at what people are passionate about. You yeah, know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, by reaching the end, this, this guy, Kane Bennett, uh, his website, this is elevator.com uh, slash infinite scroll, and uh, he's talking about this. You know, it's the, the one great loss which has resulted from the availability of huge volumes of information online is a sense of completeness. You're right. That's exactly no, no. It's it's cool for someone to geek yeah. out on on something like this. Right. You know, I just I, the hate is the question. Mark. I just don't. Uh, yeah. I don't get it. It's kind of interesting. So all right. Well, anyway. So that's one um, to get us started. Uh, let's see. What should we jump to next? Do you want to talk about Angular, Joel? You said you were learning Angular over the weekend, right? Tell me about your experiences. I was so uh, a couple of weeks ago. I tried. You know, did some Ember hacking. Went through the Ember tutorial. It was good. Enjoyed it, but now I thought, you know, I've got to try the Angular as well. And the context for this was um, Go Instant is a platform that I've been looking at for a while. It's really interesting. It's a company they are uh, part of Salesforce now. But basically, they have a set of APIs that you can use in your application that sync up data. So imagine co-browsing. You and I are both on the same web page, and when you move the mouse, I see you know, what pages you're navigating to, that kind of thing. Or for chat, that you know, real-time collaboration, or even real-time gaming in JavaScript on the web. So anyway, that's Go Instant. They're really cool. They do a lot of interesting stuff. They're pretty new. Um, but they have uh, Angular integration. So I checked out this Go Angular, and uh, there's a there's a really nice little screencast that walks through building an application with Angular and uh, Go Instant. Tried it out over the weekend and accidentally wrote an application on my couch. You know? <laughs> <laughs> was just trying to learn it, but it found it was really, really so, easy. So how does it work? Do they supply directives, or how does, how's it, how um, does so it plug in? So in? in their case, um, they're basically like the data backend, so they have like the data bindings kind of okay. thing. So they don't have directives, but you're just kind of using, uh, you know, you're creating a Go Instant connection, and they have some other, you know, kind of integration that makes it sort of easy. I'm not actually clear on what they do that because I'm new to Angular. Sure. Um, but they're a module that you have to include, and mm -hmm. then you know you kind of get there, I guess. Um, Do you put service is what I assume it is. So okay. they they take care of the synchronization part of it. Yeah, so it's like you you're just like you're writing to a key value store where you can put in any kind of JSON object. Oh, cool. Uh, but kind of the cool thing was you can put in. Um, it's I mean this is probably really typical among JavaScript stuff, but it's it's all duct taping. So like I started out writing this list of things. Did you say duct taping or duct taping? I, that's what I thought he said. I said duct typing. <laughs> I like that. But I though. probably said duct taping because that's yes. what I'm more familiar with. But. <laughs> So, for it, duct tape. so I started out with this list of things, right? And it was a bunch of strings. And then I decided, well, all these strings, I want them to have like a like a thing and then a point total next to it. So then I just, you know, changed it to uh, an, a JSON object that had like strings and numbers. And then you put it back into the same 
um, go angular key space and it's fine with that. Like it doesn't care. Okay. So uh, it was really cool. So you can just iterate like really fast. I found that um, Angular was very, very easy to understand. That's what everyone says when they yeah. play with it. Yeah, so it was it was like a no-brainer. I mean, it was really easy. I mean, I didn't have a lot of time, so I figured I, I wasn't sure how far I would get. But like <laughs> I said, I was able to just kind of, you know, I hate it when you have like, okay, I have a couple hours, like the kids are in bed, <laughs> I can do something, and like you get maybe your project just sort of set up. You're like, ah, like right. I'm never going to get there if it takes me like three hours to set up my project. I didn't even write a line of code. You know? Right. Like, you need this, but to do that, you know, you read this. Okay, yeah. but I'm reading this, and I need that. And like, Come on. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But this was good, and this project was actually, I think, a good learner project. They had, like, some Node junk in there. So you're, cool. supposed, you're supposed to run it with um, Node. Mm -hmm. And so they had this Harp web server just, like, came with it. So you just kind of uh, ran the project. So I, I thought that was really neat, and I thought it was easy to use. Yeah, until you start really writing directives in Angular, I think that's where everyone starts hitting their heads against the wall a bit because although it's very powerful, and once you get it and it clicks – it feels good. You know, you, you get a sense for, oh, okay, I can do scope in here and there's a controller I can use. Just like any other object, the tough part is all that DOM manipulation inside of it and getting the life cycle right. But all the things like controllers and services and views, very easy to pick up, especially if you've done something like Spring before. And the flip side is because I was using Go uh, Go Instant on the back, like it was like a real app. Like in other words, yeah. I wasn't using mock data. It was actually just really being stored on this uh, basically cloud service. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah, so there's, you say that on here that Matt Krieger um, has a Go Angular wish list example. That's the thing you followed. Is that right? Yeah. So he has this uh, Christmas Christmas wish list, you know, people can just add items to a list. And oh, a I think page. I've seen this. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, so I started hacking with that and trying to turn it into something else. Mm -hmm. And that's where um, it was very, it was like simple enough that it was pretty easy to hack, but it, then it was um, complicated enough that it could actually give you examples of how to do some things. Some mm -hmm. things are so simple, you're like, well, you know, okay, but now so what if I do anything real? Is this a, a hosted service, uh, the, the actual sync, sync part of it? Yeah, so they okay. have a hosted service. So when you write to this key store, then it's synchronized to anybody else who's watching the same key store. And there's like a free tier, I guess? There's a free tier, and then there's paid tiers above that. Yeah. Okay. They're pretty generous free tier. Actually, right now it's in beta, so everything's free, but they publish their pricing uh, so up to a thousand users a month uh, for free, which at internet scale is not a lot, but at playing around scale is fine. Yeah, right. yeah, that's pretty cool. That's neat. Yeah. Um, now, while you were in there, um, I'm assuming you had to deal with callbacks and promises, right? Yes. Yeah, so oh, the good segue. <laughs> Speaking so, of uh, that, in Angular, so callbacks and promises are like you know no big deal. Uh, probably if you've been using Angular, or some of these other frameworks that really take it. Uh, take that as like one of their core abstractions. But this was really interesting. Uh, just so a sideways thing, I ended up uh, finding, and actually the guy who did the Go Angular, um, like you mentioned his name, Matt Krager, mm -hmm. uh, provided a link to this very good uh, presentation by Dominic Denicola, which we provided a link to called Callbacks, Promises, and Coroutines, oh my. And uh, basically, you know, the whole point of it was that the typical way of doing asynchronous programming in JavaScript or the old way or whatever you want to call it, has been callbacks. And so um, that's fine when you have like one level of callback, like I make a call to get something from an Ajax call and I get that back. But when you need to do like three of those in sequence, like I need to make one call to get something, then another call to get something else, and then a third call, and they actually have to kind of happen in serial, it becomes a nightmare because each callback has to then call the next call, which, and so then that callback has to call the right, next Right, and one. then you with exceptional conditions. It, it's and, insane. Oh, yeah, it yeah. like very quickly becomes very not fun. And so uh, promises are another way of dealing with that same thing, that same uh, problem of asynchronous programming, but it lets you write things that look a whole lot more like return values and try-catch exceptions. So you can actually um, 
take those three serial things and call them in serial. So you can say do this, then dot, then this, dot, then this, dot, then this, dot, catch, you know, some exception. And it, it actually makes – it reads so much better. So it's really interesting, and there's a framework called Q, which is super popular, which I never heard of. And uh, <laughs> the story that's of my what, life. That's what Angular's uh, promise framework is based on, the same methods as, as Q. Yeah, so, so Q seems like really a good – you know, this is you know, pretty well-trodden ground. But if, oh, you like haven't, if you haven't looked at this, uh, you know, the difference between callbacks and promises, this presentation is really good. And, it you know, it, it basically says, you know, don't call a callback, return a promise. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it just turns out to be much more readable co- code. But almost to the point you're like, oh, my word, why – didn't this get thought of like a long time ago? Yeah. But it's yeah. very, very good. Mm-hmm. So Angular does that, for example, with their HTTP object. If you um, if you execute an HTTP uh, call, you can get a promise back and then do the, the same kind of thing. So um, they kind of want you to think that mode uh, when you're programming anything that requires to go somewhere in JavaScript. So I think, uh, yeah, I th- another common term I think is deferred. So like Python's yeah. twisted has deferred sort of the same. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Anything else on the Angular? You have Angular Sprout here. What is uh, that? Sure. If we're on the same thing, so you know, as you, as you kind of keep diving oh, into about it. this a while back, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So Angular Sprout is uh, so you know. So as I started doing this, there's a, there's things you have to end up you know getting your development environment set up and just stuff you have to get start to you know actually build a real project. And Sprout, uh, Angular Sprout is an awesome project. I heard about it from the author. I'm going to try to remember his name. He is actually speaking at ETE now. Uh, at the Emerging oh. Tech Conference. But uh, I saw him at the Philly JS Conference. He's from HBO, a uh, really sharp guy, and he came up with Angular Sprout. So basically, it's a seed project for Angular. Now, there is a project called Angular Seed, which is the, I guess, supported default seed project, or right. you know, just project you cut and paste to start with. Well, the thing that Sprout improves upon, and the problem that I have with most of these like beginner uh, projects is they're too simple. Like Basically, they lead you to a monolithic app, like even the Go Angular app, which is again just intended to learn Go instance APIs and bindings to Angular, but it has like one file that has like all the JavaScript in it. Yeah, you know, I hate like that. defines a module and the controller and everything the controller does, and it's like all in one thing. Great for learning because you don't have to go to multiple files, but terrible if you were actually going to make a real app. Yeah. Um, again, it's not intended to be that. This is intended to be that. It separates your controllers, and uh, actually, let me just uh, open up. Uh, yeah, so, so it basically gives you a directory structure and some things in there that are um, already uh, pre-populated. So it sets up your your directory structure, like gives you an application uh, .js file. It defines your constant services, controllers, filters, and directives. All your pieces of Angular, it kind of makes shims for all those, and it provides you an easy way to take um, – the directory structure would be you would take a partial and a controller and everything that has to do with uh, entity in your system – and you put it in one directory. And so then you can have, obviously, sort of like a module. And then you can have, like, not an Angular module, but just conceptually like yeah. a module. And then you can have, um, you know, if you have more and more things, you end up with more and more of these directories. And so it actually scales. You know, it, you can build a real project. And you can see really quickly that that this directory structure would work, would get you pretty far. It also does stuff like sets up uh, testing for you. Um, it has a grunt script. It has stuff to do other kinds of testing, which I didn't actually get to yet. Um, and uh, testacular. Yeah. It's nice because it's actually fully modular. So, you know, they break up different sub-modules for services, controllers, filters, and directives, which is what you want to do. But when you're prototyping, you never have the time to get around to do it. And then it's more than just, like, the directory structure. It's not like, here's a directory structure recommendation. Like, there actually are – it is a working app, even though it's a super, super simple working app. Yeah. So so that was really nice to get started. So I took the GoAngular – 
uh, project, and that kind of learned that. And now I'm writing a new project from scratch with the uh, with the uh, the sprout. Uh, the Angular Sprout as the basis of that. So I'm basically cutting pasting from simpler projects, but into this project, which is laid out in a fashion to be more modular, like can handle a bigger app. Plus, it also gives you a menuing system, which the uh, the, the Angular C doesn't. And it's so a, that's always nice to get started with navigational as well. And if you look in there, uh, you know, it actually has examples on how to write a service, nice, how to write a directive, and it's a very simple directive and it's a very simple service. But you know, you can learn. Uh, I don't know that I didn't actually read anything but the code, and I learned quite a bit about Angular just from this one project. Yeah, it's, it's nice. Yeah, so so you know, it's a good, well, and good way also, to get into it. You know, as a, a quick note with Angular, when you get started writing services, the first gut feel you want to do is to write a dot service method. Don't do that. No. Dot factory is much better, so they're using that, which is great. So right away, you're doing all the best practice stuff. That's fantastic. That's very cool. As much as I hate that word. Cool. Awesome. All right. Let's see. Uh, I got to contribute something here um, <laughs> this week. Let's see. Uh, how about we look at free sites to learn how to code? Now, I only mention this because because it's probably below the the level that people uh, are listening to this podcast normally need. But it's always fun to look at browser based um, development tools. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, they're not great. Although lately, there's a couple that I absolutely love. We mentioned a couple times uh, things like um, what's that JavaScript one that everyone uses. JS Bin. Uh, JS Bin. There's another one that, that runs JavaScript that I've been using. Uh, darn. I won't remember the name of it now. But uh, Snippler, I want to call it, but that's probably not it. Terrible. I can't remember these names. Uh, but anyway, so they, they let you kind of set up multiple panes. One's your HTML, one's your CSS, one's your JavaScript, and live runs your code, that kind of thing. Um, so they mentioned things like on HTML5 rocks, uh, that, you know, lots of nice tutorials there. If you scroll down a little further, there's a nice little learning JavaScript. If you're beginning JavaScript, there's a uh, codeavengers.com, and they got a little panel at the bottom for your code editor. And as you walk through and you do things, it basically says, go type this and try this, and you kind of have an interactive shell. Years ago, wasn't there like an instant like Ruby uh, thing like that for learning Ruby? Uh, Ruby Lang or I something don't... like that? No, I don't think so. Uh, Go has one, the Go Playground. That's right. That's right, the Go Playground. That's right. I remember that. Uh, Python, there's a little Python one out there. So this is a long list of a bunch of different services like that. Um, It's cool because for some of these, you know, you're not going to necessarily know every language on here. You can just play around with it a little bit. Right, right. Here's an interesting one, Program R. Program R. The site allows to learn Java through coding challenges and either rewards rewards points based on your answer or displays bugs in your code. So that's another fun one, too. If you're not a Java person, you want to learn Java. Um, what's the iOS one going to say? Just remember that everything is next step. <laughs> um, and then they mention um, a bunch of different uh, honorable mentions, and they mention basically some massive online course services like Coursera. Um, there has been, like we talk about haters and stuff, right? So there's been a big pushback, and I want to bring this up. There's been a big pushback on the massive online courses, uh, those MOOCs that you hear a lot about. And it's mostly, I think, um, from the university setting where universities, uh, a lot of them had said, you know what, this is the way of the future. We're going to put a lot of resources towards MOOCs and we're going to have people taking distance classes and they sign up using mass home online courseware. turns out that not a lot of people complete the courses. And that's what people are finding is um, it's hard without a live instructor available to you to really get the depth of learning that you need and to force you to show up and do the learning on a regular basis. It's like I can collect as many musical, you know, MP3s as I want, but if I'm not going to sit and listen to them, it's not valuable to me. No, it it all depends on what you're risking, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it depends. Are you paying for the course? 
right? So right. money is a motivator. Right? Could be. Um, big one. You, you, yeah, you exactly. would think it is, but the thing is the universities are saying that they're not getting a lot of completions, even with people who purchase them. Wow, that, that's surprising. Usually the almighty dollar, if you shut out like a couple thousand bucks for a course, you're going to finish it. I think I would. I think a lot of people you know, who are uh, experienced techies know that this is going to save me a lot of time, and so they're going to go to it. But if you're like a beginner and you start getting lost, you know, sometimes you don't have that person saying, look, you know, you got a D in this last assignment. It's time to buck up, and here's what you can do, and well, office hours and all that fun stuff. People always make that judgment. What is my time worth in money? Right. You know, so. Right. So, but it's interesting. Have either of you taken those Coursera-type courses? I've never finished one. Ah, see? <laughs> Me either. I signed up for the Scala one, and you know what happened? It was one of those things where um, time versus money. <laughs> exactly. It was free. The first three questions were like super, like get inside your own head and think about how recursive programming works. And I went, that's probably how all Scala is. And I just had no time. Right. And I never finished it. I feel bad about it because I think I should finish it. But uh, I think a lot of people run into that. And I actually was talking to one of our contacts out there about some of our training and asked them, hey, you know, what are you, what are you looking at in terms of training and what do you think of these? And he said we have very low completion rates in Coursera. Well, I think part of the problem is uh, the translation from like a regular university semester type course doesn't translate well into an online course. That's right. You can't get 16 weeks worth of material into one online course and expect people to complete that. Yeah, either they need to be bite-sized and then what's yeah. the value. Or, exactly. you know, what I really like, um, if you go to egghead.io for AngularJS stuff, five minute, and this is the same thing as the old screencast from Ruby on Rails. Right. Five minute composable simple chunks of info. Right. Like, you know, they had seven or eight of them on just routing, you know, 10 of them on views, you know, all this kind of stuff. And you go to things like that. Egghead is fantastic. And they got it exactly right, I think, for digesting small amounts of information. And then, of course, they put up a paywall. You know, they got a, a fair number of them up for free and now, you know, pay for all access. But still, it's worth your time to, to pick up something like that because they're all simple things that you can easily try yourself. So, very cool. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I was trying to think of, I just found a, like a startup that's doing an online learning thing where you say how much time you have and they send you and the subjects you want and they send you like essentially little courses that fit that time. Oh, so that's it's, really It's kind of cool. like it flips it on its head from that. Standpoint. That's very cool. Yeah. I think this is one of those things like Web 2.0 where, where, you know, it was just a bad time and financially there was enough impetus to, to slow everything down and cool it off. The people who go back to the drawing board and then Ajax really got popular and you know, jQuery came to the fore, and now all of a sudden we're talking about functional programming and JavaScript, and it's, it's the renaissance of JavaScript. I think it may be the same thing for online learning, that, like you're saying, we have to find the right mode for it and the right amount to do because people are so distractible. What can I learn? If I learn three good things in a day, that's fantastic, you know? But if I have to sit through 90 minutes of lecture or seven videos to get through a chapter, if I only want to know these six things to get me forward, it'd be better for me to pick and choose from that list. So I'm maybe that's more consumable. I'm a big fan of the, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but the Cohen's, Cohen's, K-O-A-N. Oh, Cohen's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Co is that the right way to say it? Cohen's. So I, I, I've been working, I yeah. I've been working through, um, I'm most of the way through the closure Cohen's. I did those, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, to me that, that really fits my brain and it's my own pace, Yeah. you know, and uh, I like that. I agree, I, I went through the same ones and uh, I thought they were really good. They were each, some of them were really hard. Yeah. And I like that because actually when I finally hit my head against the wall, I went, oh, that's it. I learned something from that. So mm -hmm. you're right. They are very interesting. So things you can do at your own pace, things that are quick to learn, or at least are units that you can learn, come back to, you know, maybe that's what we'll see out of the 2.0 version of MOOCs. We'll have to see. Or we'll just, I don't know. <laughs> we'll no, be using one, no one will learn now. 
Right. It's no, it is. It's actually fascinating that it didn't work because I would have. I would have almost bet everything that it would. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of well excited. <laughs> no, I, I'm kind of glad it didn't yet. Yeah. But um, you know, I would love to be participating in ones that do work. So that'd be fantastic. Not to not to rain on you know a company uh, like Coursera. I certainly I'm not saying that it's a terrible service. I'm just saying that I think that there's different ways to learn online. Just like we're all saying, I think we'll have to see what comes out of that. Here's a good one. Um, storing state on the phone uh, may not be a good plan, especially if your phone is jailbroken. Now, we all, if we've done any programming with this and we paid attention for a while, um, we know that, you know, people can write data into your phone as local storage, and they aren't really forced to do anything with encryption. They should, but that doesn't mean that IT programmers are going to do so. So this person, Ariel Sanchez, uh, was taking a look at home banking apps, and he wanted to see what happened. Uh, you know, he was re- I guess he was reading through some research to see what happened. Uh, they were testing 40 home banking apps from the top 60 most influential banks in the world. And so he put a little map together, uh, you know, talked about the, the research. Uh, um, all tests were only performed on the application client side, didn't do any kind of server-side testing, things like that. And they had, like, basically a series of tests. Uh, and it turns out that there are a fair number of pieces of data that actually were stored on the phone. There was a lot of stuff where, you know, in some 40% of the audited apps did not validate the authenticity of the SSL certificates presented. Wow. Oops. That's pretty bad, right? That's pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, you know, okay, I've got an encrypted connection. I guess that's right. And you're a bank. That's not good at all. Um, so man in the middle attacks are easy because someone could say, oh, I'm the authority for this. You know, I'm SSL and I'm providing a secure uh, certificate. Go. Um, and so they talked about that. Uh, many of the apps, 90%, contain several non-SSL links throughout the application. Allows an attacker to intercept the traffic and inject arbitrary JavaScript and HTML code. Right? So you've got that going on. There's no excuse now. No. I mean, there really isn't. No, there, there isn't. There's no reason for that. Um, so so he, he goes on and on about this. It's worth reading, especially if you're doing mobile development for anything secure. Um, and, oh, most of the log files generated by the apps, such as crash reports, expose sensitive information. That's disgusting, right? Information can be leaked and help attackers to find and develop zero-day exploits. Um, And so he brings up those as well. Um, Also, most of the apps disclose sensitive information through Apple's system log. That's awful, too. Yeah. Um, And so he actually grabbed one for the console system using an iPhone configuration utility tool. Uh, And he's bringing back, actually, there's data that came back, you know, uh, you know, just... The, the user ID, <laughs> the password, it's just, just really bad. So, yeah. So if you use an online banking phone app, um, you, you, you could be setting yourself up for some sort of a, a attacks. Did he only test native apps for this? Uh, or or iOS so. specifically? Uh, it looks like it was iOS and it looks like it was native apps. Okay. So you can imagine on Android, same kind of thing. I'm sure same I'm issues. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, read up, uh, especially if you're a mobile developer, about... You know, your your company could be liable if people start, you know, losing, depending on how you set up your terms of service. But if people start getting, you know, attacked and their money gets leaked out, you get some serious financial issues in your company. You could yeah. get sued. So definitely something to look at. And that's in uh, blog.ioactive.com. Uh, and the title of it by Ariel Sanchez is Personal, Personal Banking Apps Leak Info Through Phone. Big deal. Uh, a big deal, I should say. Let's see. Um, what's this uh, Jamie Mason thing uh, here? Watch.rb. So when I was doing the the um, Angular stuff, 
uh, you have the obviously you need something to refresh your browser or so, well you can make a change in you know in your text editor and then go to the browser and hit control you know command R but that gets old so <laughs> yeah looked at a couple auto refresh kind of things there's some apps like there's some in the app store that'll do refresh and I'll do things like compile less and coffee script and stuff but I really needed something way simpler than that and so this is a nice little um, Ruby script you can get uh, it's on this guy's github page and it watches folders for changes and then reloads Chrome. Works as advertised, works very nice. You just run it in some shell and you say, watch this folder. And then when any URL in Chrome that starts with this gets, uh, refresh that anytime one of the files changes. So it worked really nice. So I'm coding away on the left-hand side and then on the right-hand side of my screen, I'm just watching the page change. You know, Grunt has this thing. Um, Grunt is like the ant of JavaScript now, but Grunt uh, has a plugin for watching things too. And so if you uh, grab the Yeoman Angular, uh, Yeoman basically is, a, is like a project builder. And you can install Yeoman, it's, an, it's a node package module. So you install Yeoman, you then install like the generator-angular, I believe it is. And then you say npm yo, right? It'll build you out a, a, a node app, I'm sorry, a, uh, an Angular app. And in there, you could just basically say grunt space serve and it will do that. It will load up your app, and it will continually refresh the app whenever you hit save. Hmm. So it's really cool. So that's another nice. angle, too. Nice. Yeah. So, that, yeah, there's a couple ways to do it, but that's cool to see because that's completely standalone and separate, which is great. Always nice to have utilities like that. Okay, we're getting there. Um, MongoDB causing agita. That's my title for it. But um, <laughs> So people are going to shoot me for that one. Uh, top five syntactic weirdnesses to be aware of in MongoDB. Uh, and so it turns out that... Uh, uh, Slava Kim uh, put together a list of these, and he found actually he, he grabbed it from David Glasser, is the person who originally uh, wrote a fair number of these. Um, he says I also take part in development of Mini Mongo, a pure JavaScript clone of Mongo API, to work with in-memory caches. So, uh, first one's a very interesting one. If you do a query uh, in in uh, MongoDB, which is a JavaScript data store essentially, um, you could say you know for example insert some data uh, with a couple fields in it. And you could do a find on that collection and say, let me find where uh, field, the second field that I inserted is this value, and the first field is the other value. Well, it turns out it won't return the results. The reason it won't return the results is because it's in BSON format, and it, the order of the parameters matters because it needs to be the order that you're searching the data. <laughs> that could really confuse you if you don't know that. So, uh, for example, the right query would be a, uh, a collection.find of the first, then the second, then the third. Um, to make sure that the order of the keys matters because that's the way that it searches. Well, uh, I mean, in, in Mongo, all, all the, the indexes are essentially materialized, so mm -hmm. you know, it really does matter. Um, you need to know that as you're using it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of depends on how you set up your indexes as well, so. So if you build, it's kind of like, I guess, a, an outer and inner kind of search thing, right? Because if you index first name and last name and you query by that, I guess you have to search by first name, it yeah, searches search first name first. Uh, well. Yeah, maybe I, somebody's going to disagree with me. I'm sure because the, yeah, my Mongo knowledge is, is probably two years out of date. Mm -hmm. But um, it does matter. So right. So so that's one thing. And then um, another one: undefined, null, and undefined. <laughs> um, so in JavaScript, undefined and null are two different values. So if you do a, a strict comparison of uh, exclamation equals equals, and you compare undefined and null, they're they're not the same. Um, but if you do a simple equals equals, they're the same. Um, but the thing is, there are two different values in, in JavaScript. BSON actually defines undefined as deprecated. 
So you can get into this situation where um, it doesn't quite match up <laughs> regardless of what you do. So you can insert a row or a piece of data, and you could say, you know, insert the first one uh, with a value of, you know, a field of null. Second time you skip it. And when you skip it, instead of it being undefined, it's, uh, it's undefined implicitly, um, but it really can't even deal with it because, as they say, the Node.js native driver doesn't implement it at all. So you might have issues returning the stuff back. So if you read through that, you can get some interesting query issues doing it that way. Um, and there are a couple of others. So if you're doing MongoDB, you might want to check with these and just kind of make sure that you're aware of them, um, you know, because otherwise you might be confused by behavior just because you don't quite understand how Node works or MongoDB works. So that's that one, and that's at uh, devblog.me. Um, <laughs> his title for his page is wtf-mongo.html. <laughs> so, all right, so that's that one. Another one uh, that I came up with, uh, found, is kind of what I've been saying all along about um, curation of repositories. Um, I, because Maven is what it is, people hate it because it's, it's just, it's kind of like putting a big XML uh, stamp on your world, but at the same time, when you're working in it, you know you can always get things back in a certain way and find things in the repository because they're there for life, essentially. Um, what you're running into in a lot of these other repositories like Node uh, or Bower um, is that they're not curated. And in fact, in Bower, all you have to do is just go ahead and say, register me. And it, it just points to your particular repository. So you could shut down your GitHub account and all of a sudden your stuff's gone. Um, so this is uh, a discussion on the server side about this. There's the exact same issue in the Go community. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's a little bit worse because there's a whole sort of debate right now about uh, how to curate these repositories because um, it doesn't, I'm not, not going to get into it, but it, it, to, to, well, a little bit. To ingest yeah, Go dependencies, use uh, the Go tool has a, a get command. Go get blah, uh -huh. right? and, it, and it'll import whatever it needs to. Um, but the version number isn't part of the, oh. it can be. But uh, oh, by you, default, no. But by, by well, you kind of explicitly have to do that. Uh -huh. you know? So you have to sort of make the version number part of the name of the the package or module that you, basically. I get you. So and and it's kind of like um, the community is trying to figure out what's the right way to do this. Should we have a uh, you know should we settle on a centralized tool that does this automatically? Where should all you know what I mean? But right now it's wherever the code is is wherever the code is. Right? Yeah. So. Um, you know, you're right. If somebody decides to drop off the grid today, and they had something that, that was really important to a lot of people, then you know. So there's, what do you do? Do you do you grab uh, the version of of whatever from somebody's repo and then stick it in your own repo? Is, doesn't then, that sound familiar? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> it right, does. right. Ex yeah. I did a search on Bower of jQuery, and I got probably 200 results, probably 20 of which were the actual basic jQuery library from different places. Um, you know, just people serving different pieces, but you really do have to do a lot of research and figure out what GitHub repository, who owns this repository, how stable is it? I have a lot of problems with, uh, okay, you know, you Google for something and generally it's fairly safe to go with whatever shows up at the top, right? Generally. This is the most popular fork, but you never really know. Right. So this fork came from where and why? Yeah. And uh, was it forked and why was it forked and, you know, so, and uh, is someone messing with it? Someone putting some sort of you know vulnerability in yeah, there? Yeah, does this guy it? accept all pull requests willy-nilly? I mean, who, right. and, uh, who knows? Yeah, and that's and this is really the question. If you think about the Maven angle, it's because in Java you can build the final executable target in a jar, right? So we can deliver 
sure, we can deliver source code, but generally the, the target, the output is what you deliver in jar format and war format and whatever. Um, and so that's why that made a lot of sense. You make a release of a product and the release goes to Maven and it stays there forever. Right. Concept-wise, that's great, but uh, I mean, you can see the community probably didn't want that restriction early on. Right. So, I mean, that's all I really have to say about it is, is that um, it would be nice to be able to at least even version the source somewhere permanently, you know, have a, a checked-in spot like a Maven Central where you could say, here's this build source, you know, so you can rebuild it if you had to. And even then, it might always might not always build the right way with tools that are two years newer. So That's true. It's all that fun stuff that, that you know, it's like we're looking at an infancy of a set of languages that are taking off very quickly, and the infrastructure needed to support them for larger projects isn't quite there yet, so you have to build your own. So they recommend in Bower, for example, that you check in your source of your dependencies. Right. You know, so, and it's interesting because you can write a Bower um, object, you can write a, a JavaScript library in Bower, and you just put the information in the Bower's package, and you can say, I base publish or push, don't need any authority at all. So you don't put a version, you don't say give me oh, you can do versioning. And a versioning? And you do, you do your version, and then you have to provide what that repository is of that version, and I guess you tag it or something, and you push that particular tag up to it. But you didn't need any particular permissions on Bower to get that accepted. So you're saying somebody could have changed that version out from under you and you wouldn't know it necessarily? You'd never know. It's long, well, they, I don't know if they could publish to yours once you've gotten I suppose they could. But like say you use you use five projects. And right. so you know, one of those projects, and on all of them you put in a real version. I use version one, two, three, four, five. But then somebody changes four under the covers and or, you don't know it. Or what they could do, I don't know if they can actually republish an existing, I don't know about that, but, or you could pick the wrong one because someone forked it and they put their magic in there so they can find out everything you're doing. So go to the banking app again, let's say it's a banking mobile web app, and you decide to grab jQuery and the person forked jQuery and they, they added their own little logger for every secure request before it sends it out secure, log it out to some sort of exported file or, or something. Not cool, or console for that matter. So you just don't know, and that's why you have to do your research. And once you've vetted it, checking in is probably the safest thing you can do. Yeah, that's, so. uh, that's awful for <clears throat> dependency management. I think Ruby Gems are way more curated than that. I uh, think so. I'm not R- sure. Ruby Gems, I was just looking at rubygems.org, and it's managed by rubycentral.org. Yeah, it makes um, sense. I don't know what guarantees they put on you know, um, the availability of it. I do know that things that have security problems are fairly quickly pulled by the community. Um, one thing with Maven is that versions of everything live forever, and so uh, I've never seen there. There are Apache, you know, some common Java libraries, Apache libraries that have problems in it, and the problematic versions are actually still in Maven. Yeah. So that, that's also that's another a, fun thing. That's an issue. Whereas I think in Gems, in Ruby Gems, they actually more proactively pull those. You know, but well, you know how they solve that? Yeah, they, they sell want, you a commercial. They service. want to say tell you which are the bad ones. That's yeah. exactly right. They sell you the for the right. commercial version of Nexus that they're trying to sell you on so that you get reports for everything because they've done the reports because they own the content, right. you know, checked in copies of the repository. They can go through it and look at it. And it's really not simple either. Um, no. just to, to, to manage all this, uh, even to just check all this open source for security vulnerabilities and licensing problems. Both yeah. of those are like equally pain in the neck to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. So, Hey, that's, that's a good note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no. You it's a more. business opportunity. Somebody could just make a, uh, why don't a you curated make a, go. Uh, you know, why thing. don't we make a Hadle question? Why don't you talk a little yeah. bit, just briefly, 
Um, so, Joel, we, we said it's sponsored by Hadel, you know, not to, to do too much of an advertorial here, but Hadel is essentially a way of searching for information within your own corporation, posting questions, answering questions. So we do that here. We eat our own dog food. Exactly. So we figured uh, there was actually a fairly pertinent uh, Hadel question that just came up uh, over the weekend, and I figured it just, you know, share some of it. So this is the uh, Hadel question of the week. You know, not to be confused with other, like, bad celebrity endorsements, like the Mr. T Flavor Wave Mini Cooker. <laughs> so, I can't get one of those. So, so uh, the question was, what's the best way to install NPM on Mac? Yep. Uh, there were a bunch of answers. I'll read you some of the ones that got. So so one that got downvoted was <laughs> the easiest ways to use the pre-built Mac 64-bit package. I love how that so, got downvoted quickly. Yeah, yeah that, got, that got canned. So you can actually download, like, NPM. Node I've pack- done all these, by the way. Packet. It's not really Node Package Manager, but it sounds like that. If you go on their website, they say that's definitely not what it stands for. But I think they're just being difficult. Um, there were other ones that said uh, some of the other answers were uh, you could use um, NVM. So that was by uh, by Ken actually. To <laughs> yeah. yes, he doesn't doesn't install. He is a subject matter expert on Hadle. All right. Um, so NVM. So you could NVM is Node Version Manager, kind of like RVM, like Ruby Version Manager. So that sounds really cool. If you have multiple versions of Node, use NVM, and you can switch between them. Um, that is a very good answer. The top answer that got voted was actually to install via Homebrew. So uh, first install Homebrew, and then just brew install Node. So if you're you if you're new to Node. Um, I think that way is like actually slightly less sophisticated than the NVM way. But it just works. But it just works pretty quickly. That's the way that I actually uh, did it myself this weekend. So there you go. What's the best way to install NPM on Mac according to uh, Chariots, Hadle it people? Depends. Yeah, it depends. What's the best way to install? Oh, What's the best way to install anything on a Mac? Right? Uh, no, R-M that always varies. Yeah, that's very different. You no, mean no. you mean you would you would argue that Homebrew is the best way to get anything? Uh, or you're asking the question. It's pretty much, yeah. Depends, though. You know, like um, some projects, they don't publish to Homebrew enough. That's true. But most, I agree. I usually go to Homebrew first. Yeah. I like Homebrew. I'm a big fan. There you go. That and I love um, Oh My ZSH. That's my favorite shell. Oh, yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Well, there's so many people who actually brew at Chariot that it gets, like beer, that it actually gets very confusing to me, these discussions. <laughs> I have to stop them and say, which are you talking about? Well, if you're talking Homebrew and coffee, we can have a whole discussion. All right, cool. Well, that's it. So for the developer news. So if you want to go to our show notes, uh, subscribe to the shows at any time. Go to chariotsolutions.com slash devnews. Uh, you can also check out our TechCast at slash TechCast. Um, and if you want to see all of our podcasts, you can just do slash podcasts and take a look at them all there. Also, while you're there, take a look at our screencast, our blogs, our um, uh, presentations from about almost 10 years worth of presentations from different shows. Uh, check those out. And you can also find information about our training at slash training. That's it. So for the developer news for episode number 75, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. I'm Eric Snyder. Go make some angular work.